Hi everyone, welcome back for another podcast episode. My name is Rochelle Kernan and today I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Bettina Bendal. She is the Chief Geoscientist of the Energy Resources Division of the South Australian Department for Energy and Mining. Hi, Bettina. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Good to see you again, Rachel. How are you? Good, good. It's really nice to see you. And thank you so much for uh, making time for this. I know that you're extremely busy, especially lately. So really appreciate your time. Not at all. Always happy to talk about rocks. (laughs) So to get started today, could you please tell us more about your background? So Uh, maybe a story about your career path or your degrees, Um, and then any goals or passions that you have at the moment or in the future? Uh, Sure. So I'm actually originally from Adelaide, and um, uh, I was the first in my family to finish year 12, let alone go to university. (laughs) So I'm sort of the groundbreaker of the family. And um, I guess originally I was actually not... Sort of in a position to go to university, I actually went into the police department and worked as a police officer for nine years. And then when I was about 25, I really wanted to go to university. I just, I just really wanted to have a go at it. So mm-hmm. I decided that I would um, resign and go to university, but I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I had vague notions about being a vet. Um, and so I thought at that stage, you couldn't do veterinary science in South Australia. So I thought, all right, I'll do a science degree and see how I go, and then I'll transfer into an interstate university if I'm, you know, if my grades are good enough. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just by luck, I chose geology as one of my first-year subjects, mm-hmm. and I just loved it. Cool. I, I did really well at it, and um, I, I decided as a result to just stick with geology. So I ended up majoring at the University of Adelaide in geology. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess almost every other geologist I've ever spoken to has a similar story. Very few people come to geology as a graduate from high school Mm -hmm. thinking that that's what I want to be when I grow up. Almost all of us come to it by accident. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I only know of one geologist who their whole life grew up wanting to be a geologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really interesting. But anyway... um, I, I stayed in Adelaide, did my major in geology. Uh, I went on to do an honours degree uh, in 1994, which was on the metamorphic geology of the Kalanjala Milanite Zone <laughs> on Air Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And, and at that stage, an honours was really the minimum you had to have as a qualification to work as a professional geologist. Okay. But, but I really wanted to go into the industry and, and work because I'd... You know, I had a mortgage mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and a family. And so, you know, it was kind of after a few years of study, I was thinking it'd be nice to work again. But unfortunately, the mining sector is really quite cyclic. And, you know, it's got big booms and busts. And at the end of my honours, I had something like five job offers. Oh, I took cool. a job. Yeah, I took mm-hmm. a job with um, what's now Rio Tinto. Mm-hmm. And then I got retrenched a month before I started. <laughs> Oh so, so luckily, my my honest supervisor had said to me, "Look, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Make sure you put in some PhD scholarship applications, which I did, which I did." And so I ended up staying on at Adelaide University and doing my PhD in the metamorphic geology of the Strangways Ranges, which mm-hmm. is up near Alice Springs, north of Alice Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, really, in terms of geology, that's still very much my 
that's what floats my boat. Mm-hmm. I love metamorphic geology, tectonics, mm-hmm. you know, plate movement, that kind of stuff's really what gets me excited. Um, but anyway, after I graduated, I, I went to the UAE with my husband mm-hmm. um, and we lived we lived in Dubai for three years where I worked uh, in, a, in the petroleum sector, actually, for a sort of a start-up Australian company based in Dubai. We came back to Adelaide in 2004 and that was around the time when geothermal energy was taking off. There was a real kind of buzz in the air about it. A lot of people were really interested in the concept of engineered geothermal systems and and very few people here in Australia had any background in it. But because I had background in metamorphic geology, I understood things like heat flow and, you know, volcanism and tectonic process and all that kind of stuff. So um, I got a job with one of the emerging geothermal companies called Petrotherm. Mm-hmm. And I was their chief geologist uh, from about 2004 till I think about well, the end of 2009. Okay. And that's when I came across to the department mm-hmm. and started working with the um, Department for Energy and Mining as their geothermal expert. And I've been here doing that since, mm-hmm. uh, but my role's kind of diversified as time's gone on. So now I also do petroleum, geothermal, and um, and now natural hydrogen resource mm-hmm. uh, exploration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you have any uh, career goals or passions at the moment or going forward? Um, at the moment, I'm really... I'm really kind of pretty busy just treading water, keeping <laughs> keeping afloat of the yeah. stuff that constantly comes across my desk because because I've got so many hats that I'm constantly changing yeah. between sort of one resource and the next and and uh, and trying to keep up with movements in all of these different areas and and also you know like natural uh, natural hydrogen is very very new it's a really new concept so trying to get across the current state of play and things mm-hmm. like that, it, it's quite, uh, that can be a bit of a, a busy time. So mm-hmm. at, at the moment, I'm just trying to keep afloat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I do have vague notions that, that of one day um, when I'm retired, I'm going to go and map for fun because I actually, I really, I'm a field-based geologist. So sure. I really enjoy being in the field and I kind of miss that. I kind yeah. of miss being desk bound and not going out to the field. Yeah. So one of these days I'm going to go back up north to Alice and mm-hmm. finish mapping my PhD. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> that's a great retirement plan. <laughs> yeah, I reckon it's good. <laughs> awesome. So could you tell us, uh, you gave us a little bit about the history of geothermal uh, in your career, but could you tell us uh, the current status of geothermal energy in South Australia specifically, and then also Australia as a whole? Sure. So I guess in the period about 2004 to 2013, 14, there was this there was this huge boom in geothermal. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of companies were interested, and uh, they were pegging ground right across the nation. And South Australia was very much kind of the focus of it mm-hmm. because we had a lot of uh, natural resources which were consistent with uh, good geothermal energy prospectivity Mm -hmm. Um, there's a couple of different types of geothermal resources which I can go into if you'd like me to but in the main um, you've got volcanic Mm -hmm. um, which is what the kind of things that people might have seen in Wairaki in New Zealand or if they've been to the geysers in the west coast of the US in California Um, also in Italy uh, Indonesia the Philippines they've got a lot of this type of geothermal electricity production Mm -hmm. Uh, which is based very much on having volcanic activity 
and sort of superheated uh, groundwater is very, very close to surface. Um, Australia doesn't have any of that. So we we focused on two different sort of sorts of research uh, resource types called hot sedimentary aquifer, okay. which is basically groundwater which is heated. Then it might be hot because um, it's just very deeply buried, or it could be hot because there's um, the thermal conductivity in that particular area is particularly high. There's a whole reason, range of reasons why you might have that kind of resource. Mm. And we do. We a very good example of that is the Great Artesian Basin, mm. which sort of straddles the Queensland South Australian border up mm. in the northeast quadrant of South Australia. There, and then the other one uh, is called engineered or enhanced geothermal systems. And this is a, a very kind of cutting edge technology, which basically it's hard to explain without a diagram, but basically if you think about it, as you go deeper in the earth, um, it gets hotter. The earth is just a natural heat yeah. engine and so it's pumping heat constantly up from the, from the core out to, to the surface and then out into space. So as you go down into the earth's crust, as you go deeper, it everywhere gets hotter. Mm -hmm. In some places it gets hotter quicker, but it doesn't matter where you go. If you drill a hole, it will consistently get deeper, um, get hotter. Obviously, it will get deeper, you're digging it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and areas where it tends to get hotter quicker is where you might have what they call radiogenic granites. Okay. So granites, which have got a lot of uranium, thorium and potassium in them, mm -hmm. are naturally producing a lot of heat by the radioactive decay of these elements. And again, in, in South Australia in particular, we have lots of examples of these sorts of uh, granites. So again, up in the Cooper Basin, uh, around the Mount Painter Inlier in the northeast of the state. A lot of the granites over on the Gawler Craton have got mm -hmm. high heat producing capabilities. And so South Australia was a natural focus for the geothermal energy to come looking and prospecting for these sorts of resources. <clears throat> so some really good work was done. You know, we were really leading the world at this stage. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a lot of very good technology developments and um, as a whole, the industry was, had some real technical successes. Unfortunately, there was a kind of a death by a thousand cuts when the GFC, um, the global financial crisis, mm. hit in about 2008, 2009. Okay. Yep. And unfortunately, the commercial environment just wasn't able to support the projects that were there. Mm. So most of those projects never actually progressed because there was not enough funding available in the market to progress them. Mm -hmm. It was also a kind of a, a another factor which was um, a lack of federal policy around renewable energy, climate change. And so there was no policy environment to support sure. um, the, 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 pro, the progression of geothermal exploration and, and the sector as a whole. So unfortunately, the sector kind of retracted and went into like a stage of hibernation, which sounds a bit negative, but actually at the moment, things are really starting to pick up. Mm -hmm. So particularly with respect to the, the rise of people's awareness of, of hydrogen as being a future fuel, which could potentially replace fossil fuels in our economies, there's this major drive on to um, understand how we can bring hydrogen on as a commercial product. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure lots of people have heard about you know, blue, green, grey hydrogen mm -hmm. and all of that. Well, um, one of the great benefits of geothermal electricity is that you can, it, you know, it's a, it's a baseload, sustainable, renew, um, renewable, no or low greenhouse emissions fuel. 
for electricity production. So if you want to think about green hydrogen, where you're producing hydrogen from the electrolysis of water using renewable electricity, the, the potential to use geothermal as the underlying generation methodology for your electricity is really attractive. Yeah. Um, so a lot of companies now are thinking about this um, concept and so starting to peg ground again in South Australia and across Australia. So that's that's really um, where we're at at the moment for the electricity side of things. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing about geothermal though is it's actually really, really varied and diverse. So most people possibly have heard of geothermal electricity, but what most people have never heard of is direct use geothermal. Mm -hmm. And as I said, the earth is just a giant heat engine. So that heat doesn't need to be used for electricity generation. You can just use that heat directly mm -hmm. to do a whole range of industrial processes. And this is an area where Australia is really behind um, in Europe, North America and throughout Asia. That there's uh, lots of industrial applications like greenhouses, fish farming, paper manufacturing, timber drying, food processing, melting snow, um, hot spas. You know, there's hundreds of different applications where uh, geothermal energy, the heat itself is used directly. And the biggest single use is for the heating and cooling of houses. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an area where Australia could really make significant impact on our carbon footprint by starting to introduce um, the uptake of geothermal energy for heating and cooling in, in homes and in districts and commercial centres because you don't need, well, it still uses a little bit of electricity, but basically you're using that heat energy directly. Mm -hmm. um, so there's quite, at the moment, geothermal is still, I would say, not well known by the general public. Most people have never heard of it. If they have, they've probably only heard of electricity generation. Yeah. But there's also this other big kind of sleeping elephant in the room, which is the direct use applications, which has the potential to be really significant. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for going through that piece by piece with us. I think there will be a lot of people out there that this is really valuable information for them. So thank you for that. Um, you had mentioned naturally occurring hydrogen as being sort of a hot new topic. Could you please yep. tell us a bit more about that and your role um, in sort of accessing that or distributing that or what you're doing uh, to be a part of that? Yeah, okay. So I guess, as I said, it, probably most people in the media now would have heard about the various rainbows of mm -hmm. <laughs> hydrogen. So gray, green, blue, etc. And um, just as a quick breakdown, I guess gray hydrogen is where you've got hydrogen being generated through the steam reforming of mm. nat natural gas mm -hmm. and th the proviso there is that process releases greenhouse gases um, as a byproduct as well as hydrogen so that that's called gray blue hydrogen is the same technology but the, the gases released those greenhouse gases are captured and stored permanently underground in um in, in, in underground reservoirs and that's sort of commonly known as uh, carbon sequestration or um, carbon capture and utilisation and storage. Some of these acronyms get quite long. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and then you've got, and then you've got green hydrogen, which is, as I mentioned, is basically the electrolysis of mm -hmm. water using uh, 
renewable electricity so that you get no um, carbon footprint, if you like, from the process of generating hydrogen. But at the moment, <clears throat> and, and so sorry, so there's a, a there's a major drive on in Australia at the moment to to starting to set up entire industries around the generation of hydrogen, mm -hmm. and part and parcel of that too are concepts around well, how can we utilise that hydrogen? How can we store it? And um, also because we're coming up such a low base the whole problem of economies of scale. So there is no market. We've kind of, it's a chicken and egg scenario. Mm. You know, do you generate it and they will come or do you somehow rather try and push the market to get going so that there's a demand for mm. whatever hydrogen we can be producing? So my department is kind of involved in that quite heavily, although I personally am not. I guess the, the area where I'm becoming more involved is a relatively new idea and that's the idea of natural hydrogen. So this is a really topical situation at the moment where currently there are many examples worldwide of, of, of wells and mines where fluxes of natural hydrogen have been measured. So when I mean natural hydrogen, I mean um, molecular hydrogen present in the subsurface without being generated by people. It's, mm. it's there naturally. And in the past, it's always been considered that this really wasn't particularly viable, that it might occur, but there wouldn't be big accumulations of natural hydrogen being um, stored in the subsurface because as the lightest, smallest element, hydrogen is really hard to contain. Yeah. And it's also highly chemically reactive. Mm -hmm. So whatever you store it in, it either kind of escapes out through it or it reacts with it. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the, the wisdom of the day that, well, there's no such thing as natural hydrogen in large quantities because it's just going to dissipate into the atmosphere and be lost. Or, um, you know, we can't, it, it, it's not being contained that we can access and exploit it. Um, but there's actually a lot of research going on to understand first of all, the kinds of rocks and the conditions that are suitable for long-term storage of hydrogen. And that's coming from the perspective of um, we're going to make our, you know, we're going to generate hydrogen. We need something to store it in. So we're starting to get, you know, real breakthroughs in thinking around how do we do that? And there is, there are a few sites in the US and in the UK where hydrogen has been successfully stored over decades in um, subsurface salt deposits, yep. which I know that that's your particular mm -hmm. specialisation, Rachel. And so there's a lot of attention at the moment being given to identifying and characterising um, areas in Australia and in South Australia that might be suitable, might have so suitable salt horizons that could be utilised for hydrogen storage. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is um, how do we, you know, can we confirm that natural hydrogen as a substance occurs in accumulations that we could potentially exploit? And they kind of go together because... If we see that salt deposits are able to store hydrogen as a man-made reservoir, does that mean that that's a potential natural reservoir mm. environment where we could go looking for accumulations of natural hydrogen? Um, but the flip side to that is um, it's really, really early days in understanding the whole geology of natural hydrogen. So until recently, we haven't really looked for it. 
-hmm. because we didn't think it was possible. So we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, we, we know that it exists. We know that there are a number of different processes in nature which generate it. We know that it can move through rock masses. We know that it can be retarded by certain types of rocks and also by aquifers. But we haven't done enough uh, dedicated, targeted research to understand that process mm -hmm. to the point where we've developed a specific um, exploration methodology which we know works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we were exploring for oil and grass or if we were exploring for gold, there's a tried and true kind of recipe of what are the key criteria that you would look for in a geologically in an area that would make it prospective for that commodity. Yeah. And we don't have that yet for hydrogen. Mm -mm. <laughs> so it's not to say that it doesn't exist. We just, we just haven't been looking for it. And so we haven't been thinking along those terms. So it's really quite an exciting time now because we're right on the cusp of starting to think about these things, starting to develop these exploration methodologies, testing whether or not they work. Hopefully they do. <laughs> and, and then moving forward um, towards actually being able to routinely explore for and identify and exploit natural hydrogen. Because if we can do that, that will shortcut that... Mm -hmm that commercial critical mass that we need to get, you know, the industry up and running. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's quite important, but yeah, very, very early days. Sure. Oh, it's so fascinating. I know it's definitely a space I'm going to keep my eye on. I'm, I think it's, it's awesome. And the potential, I mean, if it's something where they can find economic value in it, that would just be, I think it'd be really great. Oh, I think that uh, absolutely correct. I mean, the, the, the potential for, um, for utilisation of hydrogen as a, a true replacement for fossil fuels is enormous, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the transport sector, which is really a, quite a difficult area to address and yeah. think about farming equipment, yeah. harvesters, combine harvesters, stuff like that. You know, they all run on diesel yeah. and, you know, hydrogen is a real, um, has real potential to be able to replace those fossil fuels in the transport sector. So, yeah, definitely it's a watch this space. In terms of um, lessons that other countries, for example, the United States, can learn from Australia, do you think that there are any? I know from where I sit, I, I feel like I'm always learning new things being here, and I'm, I just think it's such an amazing place to be at the moment. <clears throat> Yeah, look, I think uh, at present, um, particularly South Australia, we're, we are actually a world leader now in transitioning from, um, you know, a fossil fuel-based economy to a renewables-based economy. So we are actually the first gigawatt-scale economy mm -hmm. to, to have got to a point where we are generating significant proportions of our electricity supply from renewables. You know, so last, uh, last February, um, sorry, February 2020, uh, South Australia basically got islanded from the East Coast. So mm. we, we were standing alone as an electricity-generating island. And we successfully operated in that self-sufficient electricity generation uh, status mm -hmm. for about two weeks. Oh, cool. And during that period of time, and that was when the, the Hayward Interconnector, which connects South Australia with Victoria, that went down. Okay. 
basically for about two weeks. And during that time, about 50% of South Australia's power was being supplied by um, solar energy. Mm-hmm. Bulk of it was rooftop solar. Yeah. And about 20%, I think, was coming from wind power. Mm-hmm. And then the rest... Oh, Sorry, I've just gone into the dark talking about electricity. Um, and, and the rest was from uh, a combination of gas-fired generation and battery storage. Yeah. So, you know, last year, for example, we generated on average about 58% of our supply mm-hmm. from renewables. Um, and, you know, on a number of occasions, particularly, you know, during favourable conditions in sort of spring, we were generating over 100% of our domestic electricity demand from renewables and at times, um, over 100% of that was from solar alone. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And most people are totally unaware of the penetration of rooftop solar in South Australia. It's been so popular that they're estimating something like 40% of houses have got rooftop solar. Mm-hmm. And last year, regularly, rooftop solar was meeting 70% mm-hmm. of our domestic supply just Rooftop solar, that's mm-hmm. it, without the wind and the big solar farms. Mm-hmm. And it's been forecast that next or this year, you know, next summer, we're probably going to get to a point where rooftop solar will meet 100% of our domestic supply, which means that all of our other generation can be exported. So, yeah. you know, South Australia has the potential to become really for the first time a, a major energy exporter and certainly... Um, the South Australian government at, the, at, the, at this moment um, have got very, very progressive mm-hmm. policies around increasing our generation through renewable energy. And I think they're looking at uh, trying to achieve around 500% renewable generation by 2050. So their aim really is to become a net renewable energy um, exporter. Mm-hmm. So given all that, I think probably in there, there are some learnings. Yes. <laughs> um, to be had. Uh, probably not so much on the geothermal energy side or the hydrogen exploration side just yet. That will come. Yeah. Give, us, give us a bit of a chance. But mm-hmm. certainly in terms of how do you manage a progression from 100% fossil fuels to you know, a transition towards 100% renewables, mm-hmm. I think there's probably quite a lot that can be learned from us. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so great. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's, it's really inspirational and, um, that it can be done. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It can be done. Yeah. (laughs) So more of a philosophical, um, question in terms of, uh, the diversification of our energy resources, what do you think that globally that we would need to do in order to achieve uh, net zero and overall try to bring our costs for energy down since they're so high at the moment? Mm, Okay. So it's pretty clear that there is no silver bullet when it comes to transitioning to a carbon-constrained future. Um, There is no single energy resource or technology which will do everything that we need it to do. So we really need to embrace the fact that there has to be a diversity of energy resources and technologies that come on stream. And and I think most importantly, we need well-considered and supported plans as to how to do that transition as quickly and as painlessly as possible, because there's no doubt there will be some pain involved. But Mm -hmm. the better we manage that process, 
the, the better we'll come through it and the quicker we'll come through it. Um, there are, I mean, there are tremendous opportunities for Australia in particular to secure a position as a global exporter of energy and also of innovative technology. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, emerging technology and, and ideas around technology that are starting to come to the fore, which can really make a big difference, particularly in like remote locations or greenfields areas where developments are just beginning to come off the ground. So things like community-based integrated energy solutions mm -hmm. and also I think the biggest one which is really overlooked in Australia too is energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. So um, what can I say? I'm, I'm just thinking like technologies like this idea of an integrated um, energy solution, this is a scenario where... A, a local development, whether that be a town or a building or a supermarket or whatever, looks or assesses the energy resources that are available to it kind of locally. Yeah. And it tries to optimise the design of the overall energy system by just concentrating on developing their own sort of small-scale grid. Or it doesn't even have to be that small. It can be quite large. Mm -hmm. It can be megawatt-scale. But the point is to to optimise the design of their overall energy system by developing uh, local energy resources. And so that might, for example, look like um, using ground source heat pumps, which, which is a technology that uses geothermal energy to provide heating and cooling mm -hmm. for the buildings. And that can also provide sanitary hot water as a byproduct. Yep. Um, and in general, 40 to 60% of your energy budget of a house or a building is just heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of think about that as being the baseload demand mm -hmm. of the building or the community. So if 40 to 60% of your energy budget is being met by native uh, geothermal energy, which is heat as opposed to electricity, then the rest of your energy um, demand or budget could potentially come from a, a mix of different electricity, electricity generating resources. So it could be a combination of solar, wind, mini hydro, biogas, battery storage, for example, kind of depending on what your local environment offers as the most uh, locally available and economically viable case for each different scenario. And mm -hmm. what that then means is that you've not only diversified your energy resources, but you've also diversified um, the timing of your demand. So if you sure. think about things like, you know, at, at the moment, if, you, if you're getting, if you're on the energy grid, if that's if that's where you're getting your electricity from, you know, everyone gets gets up in the morning, puts the air conditioner on while they get yeah. ready to go to work. Yeah. They go to work, then they come home and they chuck the air conditioner on. So early in the morning and in the late afternoon, we have these massive big peaks, and particularly in South Australia, that's a real problem because yeah. we have these we have the peakiest. Uh, energy demand in Australia. And so if you have shifted 40 to 60% of your energy demand off of the grid yeah. and you're just generating that through ground source heat pumps, you smooth out mm -hmm. that peakiness, right? So it means that your grid can be smaller in terms of its overall megawattage. Yeah. But it's also more stable. Yep. And it also means that your prices are more stable because you're not getting those peaking you know, mag, um, huge big um, spot prices. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think those are the sorts of things that we need to be looking at, just not just diversifying, but thinking more along the lines of integrating <clears throat> any different energy resources mm -hmm. and and really building an energy to, um, an energy budget out of building out of your energy budget, if you know what I mean. So yeah. what is it that your energy budget is spent on? And what energy resources best fit that profile? Mm -hmm. I guess the flip side to that too is we really need to get a bit more serious about our energy efficiency. Yeah. Australia's been quite poor in and lags internationally in terms of our energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And again, if we take the analogy of you know local communities, housing and stuff like that, that's that can be achieved by by better design of houses, mm -hmm. by using you know different building. Um, materials, double glazing, mm -hmm. um, being smart about how we use our appliances, when we use our appliances, coordinating things like rooftop solar with the charging and use of electric vehicles. So you can basically use your electric car as mm -hmm. a portable giant battery mm -hmm. and you can run your house off your car. Oh, cool. I haven't <laughs> heard of that one. That is awesome. I have <laughs> Have you not? No, no, yeah. I mean, the average car, the battery of an average electric vehicle has enough juice to run a household overnight. Oh. So in real terms, if you're clever about the way that you manage your yep. um, your electricity, you can charge your car through the day mm -hmm. while you've still got your rooftop solar is still, you know, charging. Mm -hmm. And then you can basically draw back from the car battery to run your house or oh. run appliances. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's ways and means of being clever about how we use our energy more efficiently sure. instead of just consistently generating more and more and more and more and more. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Bettina. Um, I really appreciate your thoughts. This is, this is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Not a problem. Anytime. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.